verse number 1 through verse number 7. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse number 1. If you have your place there, say amen. amen. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me what hast thou in the house. She said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, verse 6, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the Bible says in verse number 6, And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy, thy children of the rest. You can be seated. And Father, we do ask you for your hand of blessing to be upon us tonight. We cannot do this by ourselves. And so we pray that if there is an exaltation, that Christ would be the exalted one. If there's preeminence, that Christ would have the preeminence. And Father, we pray that right at the center of our minds and our hearts tonight, we would find the truth and the Word of God that would help us to face the trials and tribulations of this life. And we'll thank you for all that you do for us, through us, and in us, in the name that is above every name. Amen and amen. You're familiar with the words of verse number 1 through verse number 7 of 2 Kings chapter number 4. This widow is no strange story to us. If you've been in church for just a handful of years, you've read this story or maybe heard this story preached from. We learned several crucial, crucial pieces of information about this woman that help us to enter into the gravity of her situation. Uh, four of them that I'd like to bring to your attention by way of introduction tonight. Number one, if you're taking these down, you'll want to remember these. Number one, this woman was widowed. The Bible says to us in this passage, thy servant my husband is dead. However old or however young this woman was when her husband died, we are not told. It appears that she may have been very young when her husband died because she has two sons that are still at home that have now become dependent upon income from their mother. And so you can imagine as we enter into her experience the emotional pain of losing a spouse that is now compounded by a dark future where she comes with, to grips with the understanding that she has two sons that now she will not only be a mother to, but she'll also have to become a father for those two sons. Her two sons are now fatherless. Take that in. Imagine what that must have been like. Their father's protection is now gone out of their life. Their, their father's influence is now gone. Their father's security and provision and guidance and care all of that now falls squarely onto the shoulders of this young mother 
who has two sons that now are alone with her without a father. She meets the exact criteria of James chapter 1 and verse number 27 where Brother James tells us this. Pure religion and undefiled before God is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from, keep themselves unspotted from the world. There are two young boys here that are fatherless. There is a woman here who is a widow. And so as we come to understand the gravity of this woman's situation, we understand it's magnified by the fact that this woman is widowed. Number two, you'll notice with me also in the passage that this woman is not only widowed, but this woman is welshing. I use that word to speak of her indigent condition. It was not intentional that she could not pay her bills, but as an obvious result of her husband's death, she is left with debts that she cannot pay back. That factor is spelled out also in verse number one in her own testimony. Thy servant, my husband is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And then notice this, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. That seems excessively cruel in a generation like the generation that we live in, but you have to go back to the days of the Old Testament to understand that it was not at all unusual. In fact, Old Testament law, according to Old Testament law, creditors could enslave debtors and their children to work off a debt for a period as long as seven years. That's seven years, and you can read about that in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 15. And that seven-year period of servitude could be interrupted by the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee came around every 50 years, and in that rolling of a 50-year Jubilee, if you had a debt, that debt was forgiven in the year of Jubilee. If you were slave, you were freed in the year of Jubilee. Without the hope of the year of Jubilee coming around, this woman has a very hopeless condition. She has said goodbye to her husband. Now she is preparing herself for the agony of saying goodbye to two sons who are not going off to war, who are not going off for an education somewhere at a college. Rather, they are going to be taken into slavery by an unscrupled creditor that is taking advantage of this woman in her destitution. Are you entering into the gravity of this woman's hopeless situation? This woman is widowed. This woman is welshing. Then number three, we learn from the passage that this woman is wanting. We know she and her sons are hungry because verse number two said, And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me. What hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. The pot of oil that she is describing in verse number 2 was used for cooking. It was sort of a condiment. But without food, there's no use for the pot of oil. She had no meats. She had no vegetable. She had no meal. She had no bread. This woman is finding emptiness in every direction that she turns. Her bed is empty because her husband has died. Her arms are about to be empty because her sons are going to be carried away in slavery. And when she opened up her bank account, it was empty and her pantry also was empty. 
Can you imagine that with me? This woman's life is defined more by dying than it is living. She is preparing herself to not only uh, get over watching her husband die, but if her sons stay home, they will die of starvation. And if they are taken away into slavery, it is possibly, potentially so, that she will die of starvation before they ever get back home. This woman is widowed. This woman is welshing. This woman is wanting. But we turn a big corner in the story when we read the end of verse number 1 where we learn that this woman is worshiping. The Bible says to us, There cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And notice this statement, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. Did you see that? A God-fearing man who loves the Lord with all of his heart. We need more of these kind of men in this generation by every measure. God give us pew loads of God-fearing men in our church once again. The Bible says to us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a man of wisdom. This is a man whose life is marked by the fear of God. And if he is a wise man, if he is a God-fearing man, he would not be the kind of man that would marry a woman into an unequal yoke. If he married this woman, we understand that she as well was a woman of the fear of the Lord and a woman of tremendous, remarkable, remarkable wisdom in her life. And the Lord had taken from her the husband that she loved. And now she is all alone to face the reality of a future of raising two sons without a father. And the Bible tells us that when this all begins to settle in on her and fall squarely on her shoulders, she doesn't turn to the world for her problem to be answered. She doesn't turn to a local official to get help. She doesn't call a governor or a senator. She doesn't turn to someone of a, of a carnal means to meet the needs of her life. The Bible says she went straight to the man of God. She knew that if she could get to God's man, that she could get a word from the Lord, and that word from the Lord, amen, I didn't feel real good when I got here, but I feel fine now. That word from the Lord would be what would sustain her in the time of her greatest destitution. Look at how the man of God responded to her concerns in verse number 2. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And Elisha responded to her concern with a question, What do you have? And I love how she responded in verse number 2 when she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. She was saying to the man of God, this is all I have. This is all I got. There is nothing else. And it was when she came to the end of all of her resources that God began to do something miraculous and legendary in her life. It was in her time of 
emptiness that God put her in a position to experience a great miracle. And what Elijah told her to do next, and I'm going to give you my title here in just a moment. What Elijah told her to do next is legendary in the arena of faith. Verse number three and verse number four. Then he said, go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors. And I have highlighted in my Bible this next statement, even empty vessels he said to her borrow not a few and when thou verse number four when thou art come in thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shalt pour out into all those vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full now look at what elijah said to her he said your bed is empty he said your bank account is empty he said your cupboard is empty he said your arms are empty he said, your stomach is empty. What you need is more emptiness. Go out into the community and find everything empty that you can find. I want to preach tonight on the power of empty things. There is something about emptiness that seizes the attention of God. He never leaves anything empty. As a matter of fact, in the original creation, we learn in Genesis chapter number 1 that God started with a void. The Bible says that he created this earth. And the Bible tells us in the midst of all of that, the earth was without form and it was void. And on day number one, he acted in creative power to fill the void. On day number two, he acted in creative power to fill the void. Day three, day four, day five, day six. Because there is something about emptiness that attracts the attention of God, that seizes the attention of Almighty God. I'm afraid that we're so full that God can't do anything for us. It's not our fullness that God is looking for. It is our emptiness that God wants. And if you're here tonight and I think that God has orchestrated the service with the Reigns family singing as they did and God has placed in their heart and my heart something to help someone tonight, listen to me. If you came here empty without answers, if you came here tonight with nothing to offer, you are in the very place that God wants you to be because it is emptiness that is a vast canvas, an empty canvas where God can do mighty and wonderful things. Emptiness. He said, you're empty. And what you need is more emptiness. In fact, he said, go out and get some emptiness and don't get a little bit, get a lot of emptiness and so she thought that emptiness was her problem and she found out that emptiness was the answer to her problem I'll share two or three things with you about that and I'm gonna let you go a little bit early tonight number one this was an experience in barrenness look with me again at verse number one through verse number three now we've read that enough that I'll I'll rely on your familiarity with what we've already read uh, but there's something about this empty condition that gathered the attention of God to her life. In fact, it appears to me in the text that the fuller you are, the less God can do with you. Did you notice with me that as long as she kept bringing him a pot, the miracle stayed. And she brought him another vessel and the miracle stayed. And she brought him another empty vessel and the oil just kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And then we read in verse number 6, it came to pass when the vessels were full. 
that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. When the fullness came, the miracle stopped. The principle is this. Once we are full, we no longer need the miracle. And the miracle stops. But as long, amen, as long as you'll keep bringing him something that's empty. As long as you'll keep bringing him something that is void. As long as you'll keep bringing him nothing in your hands and come just an empty vessel, you are exactly in the place that God can do something mighty for you in your life. There's something that God makes obvious about emptiness. You can never have fullness until you first know emptiness. You have to empty yourself of one reality in order to experience another reality. You cannot be full until you are first empty. I remember when we were in Bible college, Brother Ballou told us on a Monday night, I'll never forget it, much of what God wants to do with us, much of what God wants to do through us, much of what God wants to do in us, He cannot do because we are already full. And I guess that we could all conclude that there is nothing that is truly empty. Even if I emptied out one of these water bottles, the void becomes full of air once the water is gone. And the fact of the matter is, that's the way we are created as well. Once one reality is vacated out of our lives, the devil will crowd us in that very moment to fill up what has been vacated with something that should not be there. Listen and listen to me well. Everybody, hear me well, church, everybody is full of somebody. Everybody is full of somebody. The New Testament tells us that we can be full of the Holy Ghost. But before we are taught about the fullness of the Holy Ghost, he tells us what we can't be full of. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. One reality must precede the other. We talk so much about fullness in our churches, and I'm not against that, but we talk so much about fullness that we have missed the conversation about emptiness. You have to avoid one reality so that you can know the next reality. I remind you of another woman. She as well was a widow. The Bible tells us that she came from Bethlehem, Judah. Her name was Naomi. The Bible tells us that her, her husband, Elimelech, has died. The Bible tells us that both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, also have died. And the Bible tells us in similar fashion that she is left with two daughters-in-law. One's name is Ruth and the other's name is Orpah. And the Bible tells us in Ruth chapter 1 and verse number 21, her testimony was this, I went out full and the, are y'all hearing me? And the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And it was when Naomi came back empty that God did something miraculous to fill up her life. And I remind you of Ruth chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. And the story is wonderful. What a love story of the, the love between Ruth and Boaz. 
uh, what a wonderful story. And all of the mixture of love and all of the mixture of sovereignty and all the mixture of divine design that is in that story. How God brought all of that together. There had to be deaths that brought them to that place. There had to be funerals that brought them to that place. There had to be weddings that brought them to that place. I preached one time from the book of Ruth on three funerals and a wedding. All of that had to happen to get us to chapter 4. And when you see what's happening in chapter number 4, you may be bored by the chronology, but the entire book of Ruth was written to name some people. And the Bible says that Ruth begat Obed. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter number 1, we find that through the lineage of David was born Jesus Christ. There had to be emptiness. There had to be emptiness before she could know the fullness of God's ultimate design for her life. The Lord Jesus Christ talked to us on the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he started it all off with Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6 where the Lord Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It has to be this before it can be that. You have to know this before you can know that. And I'm afraid one reason why we're not seeing a whole lot of fullness in our churches anymore is because we're not talking about emptiness anymore. But there has to be this before there can be that. You have to bear the cross before you can wear the crown. The the flesh has to be crucified before the spirit can be crowned. Listen to me carefully, friend. You have to be hungry. You have to be thirsty before you can be filled and the Bible says when you are truly hungry when you are truly thirsty you can be filled with righteousness filled with righteousness the fact is a hungry man will do about anything for a meal a thirsty man will do anything for a drink of water and the truth of the matter is I didn't come to get mean with you this evening but we're Americans we know very little about this that's the problem We're a bunch of spoiled, rotten brats. We know very little about what it feels like to be hungry. Very little what it feels like to be thirsty. If we worked, Brother Glenn, if we went out and worked the whole day in the field, we got good and hungry and good and thirsty. Fact of the matter is, we clocked out in the afternoon. We'd just go down to the local 7-Eleven. We'd go down to the local Bojangles. I love Bojangles, don't y'all? And can I get a witness right? Breakfast all day long, amen. Amen, I'm glad to be back in the South, amen. You know when I decided to come back to the South? When on Father's Day, we gave all the men of the church a bottle of Coke and a bag of peanuts, and they didn't know what to do with it. I said, we're going back home. It's over. We're going back home. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Amen. Listen to me. Very few of us really know what it feels like to be hungry and thirsty. If we get hungry enough, we'll stop, and we'll find something to eat. But think about going days without food. Think about going days without something to drink. And Jesus said that is what constitutes a true desire for righteousness. So hungry and so thirsty that only righteous things will satisfy. 
that physical analogy certainly holds spiritual implications, doesn't it? The New Testament actually speaks of being filled all the time. We read about it in the New Testament. But have you noticed that every time he talks about being full, he precedes it by talking about something needs to be empty? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 19, he said we can be filled with all the fullness of God. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.23, of the fullness of him that it filleth all and in all these are superlatives. John 1 verse 16, and of his fullness of all we receive and grace for grace. I love that language in the New Testament. Grace upon grace upon grace. I mean it is there for you to consume. But you're going to have to get empty first. And some of you are there. Some of you are in a place in your life tonight that your tears are an expression of your emptiness. Your hurt, your time in the altar is an expression of how empty you have become. And you want to get out of this situation, but it is God that puts you in this situation for the purpose of filling you in a miraculous way. Don't turn to the world for your fullness. Wait for his righteousness to fill you. Number one, this is an exercise in barrenness. But then number two, you'll notice with me, this is not only an exercise, pardon me, an experience in barrenness. And this is not only an experience in barrenness, but this is an exercise in belief. Now again, verse number three through verse number four, you know the story. This widowed woman didn't seek one human solution for her spiritual problem. And that's a lesson that we all need to learn in this generation. Whenever, hear me well, whenever you choose a carnal route to meet a spiritual need, you have brought God a fullness instead of an emptiness, and you're going to find out you're going to have to live on your own resources through that. He's not going to help you through that. As long as you keep turning to the flesh, as long as you keep turning to the world, as long as you keep turning to carnal means to meet your needs, God said, okay, I'm going to let that run its course. And one day you're going to find all of that running out and you'll come back. The prodigal son never came back until he got hungry enough. It was when he was empty that he came home. You know, can I just say a few words? I'm, I, I promise you, I'm going to be short, but let me say a few words about that. You know, when the prodigal son left the house, he was in control of everything. He had it all. Brother Blanton, he was in control of his own money. He got to pick his own friends. He got to choose where he was going to live. He got to choose how he spent his money. He was in control of everything, and that's how he wanted it. He wanted to be in control of everything. But there was one thing in that story that he could not control. The famine. The Bible said there arose a famine. He could control the money. He could control the location. He could control the friends. But God was in control of the famine. Sooner or later, while you're out there, God is going to turn the switch on on a famine. And the whole reason he sent that famine was to get him hungry enough to come back home. Emptiness. It is working out a purpose in our lives that only God can fulfill. We're made in such a way that we just don't keep things in our lives. We just, things just run through us. Things just go out of our lives. I mean, we have to get up every day and die to self. We have to get up every day and read God's word. We have to get up every day and we pray because our lives are just made with a leak built into them somewhere. We just leak out things that are true. 
story is told of a man that uh, was troubled and he went to his pastor alone in his office. He sat across the desk from his pastor and he said, Preacher, I, you're doing as good a preaching as you've ever done and the choir's great and the songs are wonderful and the church is full and the fellowship is tremendous, but Preacher, I just, I'm not, I, I've just gotten a place in my life where I'm, I'm not getting a whole lot out of the preaching and I'm not getting a whole lot out of the songs and I'm not getting a whole lot out of my Bible reading and, and I pray but I, I just feel like my prayers just hit the ceiling and come right back down and we've all felt that way before. We've all gone through seasons of things like that in our lives. That wise man of God said to this young man, he said, he, he, he pointed over to a table in his office, he said, you see that wicker basket over there on that table? He said, yeah, preacher, I see that. He said, go over and get that wicker basket. He walked over and got it. He said, I want you to take that wicker basket into the kitchen of the church and put it down in that deep sink and fill that wicker basket up with water and bring it back in my office. And he looked at his pastor like some of y'all are looking at me right now. Wicker baskets don't work that way. But he did what the preacher said. He took the wicker basket. He went into, his, uh, into the church kitchen, and he put his hands under it to try to cup some water in it. He cradled it around to try to retain some of that water, and the water just flowed right out of the bottom of the basket. Over and over again, he tried, and he came back in the preacher's office and said, Preacher, I tried to keep the basket full, but the water won't stay. And the preacher looked at him and said, Yeah, but look at how much more clean the basket is now. Sometimes God will allow to pour through us what he will not pour into us. He said, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. I don't remember every sermon I've ever preached. Lord knows I don't remember what I preached yesterday in this church. Amen. I go from Sunday morning to Sunday night and I forget all my subpoints. And uh, you know how that is. You can't remember every uh, Sunday school lesson you've ever taught. You can't remember every sermon you've ever heard. You don't it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing as a Christian. I can't remember if John 3.16 says everlasting life or eternal life. But I can remember every words of a Garth Brooks song that I hadn't heard in 20 years. And it comes on the radio in the Walmart and I remember every bit of that. But my flesh, you just have to keep pouring it in and pouring it in and pouring it in. And as you pour it in, yes, you can't retain it. It does run through us, but it will cleanse you. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You may not be able to keep it all, but keep pouring it in. And as God pours it in, he cleanses your life. She went from, you talk about South Georgia booger bottom boys theology. She went from the poor house, the P-O-O-R house, to the poor house, P-O-U-R house. I thought that was good. Y'all might not have thought, I thought it was good. God brings us all there. Number three, this was an exhibition in bountifulness. Did you notice what happened in verse number five through verse number six? And she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out and it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. And the Bible said the oil stayed when everything was full, the miracle stopped. But she's sitting there in her house behind closed doors. And the Bible, the Bible said, I promise you I'm going to be short, but I got some things I need to say to you tonight. The Bible says she was surrounded with fullness. She was surrounded with answered prayers. 
She'd have never had any of those prayers answered had she not brought to God something that was empty. You'll be back tomorrow morning. Many, most of you here tonight will be back tomorrow morning. Come in tomorrow morning with something empty and look at what God does at Landrum Baptist Church tomorrow. Don't come in here full. Don't come in here full of Facebook and full of Twitter and full of news and full of television and full of the world. Come in here completely empty. Just wake up tomorrow. By the way, tomorrow's the Lord's Day. Tomorrow's the Lord's Day. Tomorrow's not NASCAR Day. Tomorrow's not NFL Day. Tomorrow's not Major League Baseball Day. Tomorrow's not PGA Tour Day. Don't get full of that stuff. Just come on in here tomorrow completely empty. I know that's tough. And we live in a generation don't like things like that. But if you'll come empty, I promise you, God will give you something to fill up that void. I promise you. It was an experience. It was an exhibition, pardon me, in bountifulness. In bountifulness. The kingdom of God works that way. You have to give to get. You have to die to live. You have to go down to rise up. The kingdom of God works that way. It's the exact abstract opposite of everything that the world tells us. That the more meek you are, the more grace you'll experience. But in the world's eyes, meekness is weakness. But in God's eyes, the more meek you are, you are an incumbent recipient for grace. He wants you to be meek and humble and empty. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 said, Give and it shall be given unto you. How in the world does that work out on paper? But it does, Brother Glenn. Every single time. Matter of fact, he said, I'm not just going to give to you. I'm going to give to you in good measure. Press down. We're talking about a vessel. Press down, shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. When you bring God something empty, you just empty that out and watch what God puts back in there for you. Just why you're gonna have to believe this by faith. I can't listen, I can tell you story after story after story, but if you'll believe it by faith and trust God for it, He'll do it for you. If you're in an empty place tonight, you're exactly where you need to be. Exactly where you need to be. Now look at verse number seven. I could give you a little bit of a, a little bit of political theology. Look at verse number seven. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. Boy, I wish the Biden administration would learn that principle right there. Amen. Don't you wish this bunch of a bunch of Democrats and Republicans would learn the idea that you're supposed to live inside of your means? Duh. They expect us to live inside of our means. He said, you sell everything, and when you get the money back, you pay your bills, and whatever's left over, you live on the rest of it. That's how the economy is supposed to work. My name is Chad Bailey, and I approve this message, amen. I'm thinking about running for president. I've been calling Jack, I've been calling Jack Shook the governor of South Carolina. I told the church the other day in the Millennial Kingdom, he may be the governor of South Carolina. Amen. I'm telling you, this will work. According to verse number 7, God provided so greatly that she became a blessing to everybody in the community. If she didn't have enough, certainly her neighbors may have been in the same situation. By the way, I remind you that when she went to get vessels, there were plenty of empty vessels. Everybody was famine. Everybody was hurting. Nobody had anything. And the Bible made her a conduit of tremendous blessing for the community that she lived in. Because she knew what to do with something that was empty. 
She knew what to do with something that was empty. Notice what happened. The Bible said she did what the man of God said. The man of God said the, the need is private, so let's keep all this private. She didn't get on some kind of social agenda and start telling everybody, poor mouth and saying, oh, we're in great need. No, that's not what she did. He said, you find your room, you shut the door behind you, and go in there. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here besides me? But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth thee. Did you notice it didn't say he hears, it said he seeth thee in secret. Listen, <clears throat> when you pray, he's not just listening, he's looking. And when you're empty, he has got his eyes, glory to God, he's got his eyes right on your situation. He is looking at that emptiness. He is watching it. When you bring that emptiness to God, the Bible tells us when you do that in private, God will reward you openly. And this widow woman's story is the example of that kind of active faith. The Bible says that she did what the man of God said. She went into a closed room. She shut the door. The only people that knew what God was doing was her and her two sons. Until she went and told the man of God when it was all over with, the only people that knew what was happening was her and her two sons. But notice what happened. When she did in private what God asked her to do, then there was an open reward. The whole community began to celebrate this widow's faith. This widow's faith. Truth be told, we all need a good dose of 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. If there's going to be a fullness, there has to be an emptiness. Less of us, more of him. Stephen Covey once told the story of a professor in a university that professor stood behind the lectern with a class full of university students, a secular university. He stood behind the lectern on the platform and he pulled out from under the lectern a large jar, real big jug type jar. And it had a really wide mouth at the top of it. Stephen Covey said that that professor reached under that lectern and pulled out rocks about the size of your hand and he started putting the rocks down into the jar. One by one, he placed a rock at the bottom of the jar, and the, the rocks rose up middle and all the way up to the top, and he looked at his students, and he said, is the jar full? And all the students collectively said, yeah, the jar is full. It's full of rocks. He said, no, it's not full. And he reached under the lectern, and he pulled out cups of gravel, fine gravel. And he poured a cup of gravel into the jar and he shook it and the gravel settled down to the bottom. He poured another cup of gravel into the jar and he shook it and the gravel settled down to the bottom. And he poured cup after cup into the jar and the gravel kept settling as he shook the jar. The gravel settled down to the bottom. And when the gravel was all the way up to the mouth of the jar, he looked at the student body and said, is the jar full? They said, yes, the jar is, is full. He said, no, it's not. He reached, preacher, he reached under the lectern and he pulled out cups of fine sand. He poured a cup of sand into the mouth of that jar and another cup of sand in the jar and another, and he shook the jar through the whole process. 
and the jar was full all the way up to the mouth of the jar with sand. And he looked at the student body and he said, is the jar full? And they, few, fewer of them answered out loud this time, but a few of them still said, yes, the jar is full. And he said, no, it's not. And Brother Glenn, he reached under there and he got a jug of water. And he started pouring that water into the mouth of that jar. And the water was down at the bottom through the rocks, through the gravel, through the sand. The water rose and it rose and it rose until it puddled at the top of the mouth of the jar. And he said, is that jar full? And everybody said, yes, sir. You can't get anything else in the jar. It's full. Brother Sam, he looked at the student body and he said, what do you think the moral of that illustration is? Most of the students spoke up and this is what they said. They said, there comes a time in everybody's life when you've packed in and you've packed in and you've packed in and you've put in that you can't get anything else in the jar. He said, that's true. There comes a time when our lives are very full. But that's not what I'm trying to teach you here. He said, the moral of the story is this. If I had not gotten the big rocks in first, I would have never been able to get them in. He said, there are some things that are substantial in your life. Some things that are important in your life. You need to be sure when you're empty, those are the things that go in first before you let everything else so crowd your life that you didn't get the big things in there first. Can I ask you husband something today? Did you tell your wife that you loved her today? You hear me? Did you tell that woman you're married to that you love her today? Did you tell your son and your daughters that you love them today? That's important. That's a big rock. Did you open the Bible today? Before you clock in the work and before everybody starts texting you and before all of the social media accounts start dinging and ringing and going off, before you answer everybody's text and everybody's call, did you call on the name of the Lord today? Or have you gotten so busy and you've let your life get so full that you have left out the big rocks that God intended to be in there? I'll add my own, I'll add my own South Georgia theology to that. By the grace of God, you can come this evening. This sounds crazy, but by the grace of God, you can come this evening and dump out your jug right here in the altar and empty it out and make sure you put the big rocks in first so you can fill your life with the things that God wants. Let's stand this evening with every head bowed and every eye closed. I, I've tried to mind the Lord. This is the message that the Lord gave me to give to you. and I hope that it's been what you came to hear this evening.